Um, with no further delay, I'm going to ask you if you'd be so kind as to break bread with me to the eighth chapter of John, as uh, Eric just mentioned. We're going to uh, read together verses 31 to 36. And as you do that, you, you, you open up or fire up your Bible. I'm going to ask you to keep your, your finger in uh, the book of Exodus as well. We're going to be actually spending a good time in a couple of passages there, but tethered back to John chapter 8 and uh, beginning in verse 31. Let's read through verse 36 of God's infallible, inerrant, living, active word. And it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we're grateful to you for your word, that you would speak it at all, preserve it through the ages, and by your spirit minister it to our hearts is a, is a wonder. And so we come in humility and we sit beneath your word and we ask you that you'd speak to us those things that we most need to hear, that the saints would be encouraged, that someone would come to know you and know you savingly, Lord God. And we ask your help because only you can do the things we ask today in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to be spending uh, the lion's share of, of our time looking at some passages in Exodus, but I, I believe that we would do... Uh, well to as we have begin with these jesus words to a crowd in john chapter 8 uh, paying particular attention to uh, a qualification that jesus gives to the freedom this 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 liberation that happens in the life of of every believer when we place our trust in jesus christ for salvation and in reading our opening text we've we just kind of parachuted into a situation that has a lot of context and, and there's all manner of, of misunderstandings going on in this crowd that Jesus is a, a addressing here. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand what he's come to accomplish. Uh, a few verses earlier in verse 31, we see that this group had professed so, some form of trust in Jesus, only to have Jesus, the same Jesus, just a few verses later in verse 44, tell them that they're the children of the devil. It's... It's an interesting situation, and what, what betrayed that they had something less than a saving trust, a saving faith in Jesus, was that they felt that they already, before Jesus, independent of Him and His work, they already enjoyed a freedom that Jesus could add little or nothing to. They felt fully free on their own. They felt that Jesus could add to their lives some kind of religious supplement to their alleged wholeness. They felt like they were quite all right and were just okay to have Jesus add a little bit more all rightness to them, if you will. But Jesus would have none of it. Jesus didn't descend from the right hand of majesty to suffer the wrath of man and of God himself to make allegedly good people better. 
He didn't come to somehow make free people freer. Now, Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save sinners, to liberate those who were slaves to sin, that they might be free and free indeed, he says. Jesus Christ came with that mission and he would not be deterred or detoured. In verse 36, Jesus says that the freedom he gives is freedom indeed, ontos, really free, truly free, certainly and verily free. And that's not to say that there's levels or, or gradations of freedom found in Christ, but he's making the point that the freedom that he came and lived and died and rose and ascended for us to have, it's an indeed kind of freedom. Complete, thorough, purchased at the high price of his precious blood. And he's uncompromising in this. And it, it's my joy today to speak of this, this great salvation, this great liberation that, that we believers share. And that we, through the gospel, offer to all who have not known it. It's a great salvation that God still offers in Christ today to all who would turn to Him in faith. So, it's no wonder that the writer of the Hebrews warns us against this danger of neglecting so great a salvation. And we neglect this salvation when, among other things, we fail to, to realize, to ponder, to celebrate the greatness the reality, the, the depth and the breadth, the thoroughness, the completeness of the freedom that we have in Jesus. Having been saved out of sin, out from under the, the wrath that is to come, we're to celebrate, we're to savor, we're to enjoy and remind one another that we weren't just saved out of sin, but we are saved into something into right standing with the Father, into a co-inheritance with, with Christ, into a powerful fellowship in the Spirit, into a citizenship in God's kingdom that's already and not yet. Out, but out of what we were in to bring us into a newness that sometimes we can lose track of. My, my prayer is that we'll see that this is the truth of two testaments, as God has always done all things well, and the freedom that he gives to his people is always freedom indeed, a freedom from past things, a freedom for new things. From the vantage point of the Old Testament, we can see the, the fuller glory of the New Testament as the scriptures give us something of, a, of an argument Aminore ad maias, or, or from the lesser to the greater, saying, since this truth is glorious, how much more this greater truth? Since in the Old Testament, God gives a display of his thorough, his, his complete freedom that he gives to his own. If it is glorious in its Old Testament context, how much more? When the shadow gives way to the substance, and we see in Christ the full freedom that God has always had in mind. And, and to look back at the Old Testament, we see, even then, God working a redemption that's to be received fully. Indeed. Without compromise. And it's a principle that finds uh, one of its earliest expressions in the story of, 
God's rescuing of his, his covenant people from 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt, the Exodus. And it's a familiar story, I know. It's a story that actually begins in, in, in Genesis and not in Exodus. By, by Genesis 15, a thorough and a complete redemption, a liberation is foreshadowed in, in God's promise and in, in, in the covenant that he makes with Abraham. He promises Abraham that he would not only bring his covenant people out of slavery, but because he was going to make them free indeed, he was not just going to bring them out, but he was going to bring them into a place prepared and promised for them. God would make his people free indeed, bringing us to that familiar story. And you may be, you probably are quite familiar with it. Maybe when we talk about the Exodus, it, it evokes in you maybe images of Charlton Heston or uh, a movie you've seen, or maybe it reminds you of, of childhood Sunday school experiences and stories. Maybe you colored a picture that, that depicted an episode in this thing we call the Exodus. Or maybe I've just awakened an earworm in some of the parents' ears, or some, some song about a parted sea or a plague or something that just is probably going to be with you all week now. But it's exceedingly significant. This is a narrative that prefigures for us true Christian liberation, our own rescue, and what it is that Jesus came to accomplish because ours is an even greater exodus led by a greater liberator than Moses out of a crueler slavery than they experienced in Egypt and into a greater promise than the Canaan Valley. Ours is something even more glorious. The believer is saved by Jesus from, among other things, a slavery to sin and made a partaker of, of eternal glory that we taste now but will fully enjoy soon. So that Peter could proclaim in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's complete. It's freedom indeed. And just as the liberation of Israel from Egypt prefigures this greater deliverance of God's church, his, his new covenant people will see that Satan's, Satan's tactic through Pharaoh is also a foreshadow of some compromises that he yet tries to negotiate with believers today, inviting us to, to underestimate what it is that Jesus Christ won for us as he shed his blood on the cross. We know before and, and in between the astounding plagues that the Lord sent upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Moses would come in and speak with Pharaoh, as you know. At times, wicked Pharaoh would, would simply just defy the Lord's command and not release the people. Other times, he would promise to, re to release them only to renege on his promise and hold on to them. Or we also see how he repeatedly used another tactic that we, we still see today. He offered up compromises twists upon the realities of God's saving work that if we were to believe them, would leave us only partially enjoying the present and promised joys of our salvation, of our freedom. He hasn't come up with any new tactics because he hasn't had to. 
Four times in Moses' interaction with Pharaoh, Pharaoh offers up these bargains, trying to renegotiate the terms for a lesser version of freedom, which is not freedom indeed. It's not freedom at all. Three plagues into the story. After the blood, the frogs, and the gnats, the Lord's threatening another demonstration of his might and his judgment on Pharaoh's obstinacy and beginning now to grow weary of the Lord's hand upon them, Pharaoh offers up the first compromise to God's demand that his people be set free to go out and worship him. Pharaoh offers, first of all, to have them stay in slavery but go through the motions of worship. Okay, I get what you're asking for, he says. You, this is about worship, right? You, you, you feel that you need to go out because you want to render to your God some, some worship that you think he's worthy of. I'll tell you what I'll do. You can stay here and I will allow you. Just, just worship him here. Just worship him without leaving. Just stay here. Chapter 8 of Exodus, beginning in verse 24. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt, and the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. See, Pharaoh's no longer denying them their desire to, to perform worship services to God. He just modifies the Lord's redemption plan just a little by, by offering them a new option. Do it, but stay where you are. They could have some time off for, for services, for, 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 for gatherings, for, for sacrifice, for maybe some singing, some teaching. Then when you're done and you've got it all out of your system, back to the chain gangs, back to the rock quarries, back to the assembly lines, building Pharaoh's kingdom between your services. How about that? How does that ring? Is everybody happy now? You can go ahead and have church in between church meetings. Just go on and build Pharaoh's kingdom he was so kind as to allow them to be now religious slaves Moses saw through his scheme and would have no part of it Pharaoh knew that the Egyptians themselves wouldn't even stand for it but more importantly Moses in verse 27 he asserts that God has called them out and had commanded something different something more than becoming religious slaves. May this serve us on this side of Calvary as well. We're offered the same thing today. Selling the power of the gospel short, telling us that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change your Sunday mornings. And not much else. He has the power to help clean up your vocabulary a little bit. Maybe drop a bad habit. He can do that! But then back to the mines. 
Satan would have us believe that we can and must remain slaves to old sinful ways of acting and thinking that we've been bound in for years and then just sprinkle it with some semblance of Christianity. But I remind you that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Not just in part, not just the optics of it, but the reality of it. God in Christ, by His Spirit, through the Gospel, calls us out. Out of all that once bound us. Not merely offering a, a little bit of moralism to your bondage, but to take a new you to a new place in Him. No compromise, no negotiating, free indeed, free in Christ. To try to stay in a captive, just an enslaved kind of existence and offer up worship is simply not an acceptable settlement. God, in verse 27, calls His people out to worship Him in freedom. Putting on display to all the nations that would be watching that they would know that God's people serve a God who can do great things with former slaves, with those, with those who used to be bound, perhaps even still bear the marks of former slavery, but now free so that all the nations could see this God, He is God. And that doesn't happen when we stay in Egypt. Because it has to do with the glory of the one who calls us out and the salvation of those still in bondage. And so it is in our new covenant relationship with God, as we read in Hebrews 12, that therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Is that you? Is that me? Are we trying to make the impossible and the unacceptable work somehow? To be in slavery and just sprinkle some moralism on it? No. That's futile. And by God's grace, it's entirely unnecessary because He gives us a complete freedom and not just a semblance of it. May we walk in the freedom of our own great exodus, following our own great deliverer. Let's likewise insist upon, insist upon offering up right worship with all of our lives, every day of every week, and on into eternity. But Satan through Pharaoh offers up another all too familiar compromise here. One we can, if we're not careful, easily find ourselves considering. See that Moses was intent upon following God's directive here to leave Egypt and go worship. And Pharaoh here offers up. He tenders what would seem to be, again, maybe a benign kind of a middle ground. He says, okay, I, I see it. This is a sticking point. You're not going to stay here like I first offered you. So he cunningly offers God's people. He says, you can go, he says, and you can worship God. But do it somewhere between Egypt and your promised land. Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. 
Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that, your, that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people tomorrow. Only let, Pharaoh, only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Pharaoh seems to be wilting under the pressure. The plagues just keep coming. The misery is all over Egypt. The land has been, according to verse 24, ruined by flies. By verse 28, Pharaoh asked Moses, plead for me, showing that it had somehow touched him deeply. But even in Pharaoh's weary state, His capitulation, his, 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 his bending to the circumstances, it was only a front. He offered to let God's people go, but he says, only do not go too far away. I get you, you're not going to stay around. You're determined to go, your God seems determined that you go, but I'll let you go if you stay close by. He's trusting. He's trusting that after 400 plus years in slavery, if they stayed just close enough and knew it was a short walk back, that their memories, that their, 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 their traditions, they had grown so accustomed to the Egyptian way of life that when they're out in the wilderness, maybe when times get hard, maybe when, when the, the menu gets a little bit whittled down, they're going to remember the good stuff in Egypt and they won't be too far to turn and walk back. Or maybe if he just ever needed them back, he knew where he could find them. But either way, the bargain he at first offered up was going to leave the people no longer in Egypt, it's true, but neither were they going to be in the promised land. Somewhere in between. The people were not where God had called them to be. Now, now, don't get me wrong, there is something to be celebrated there, and we all should. It seemed like progress, right? So much so that Moses accepted the terms. Some scholars feel that this was a moment of failure in Moses' leadership. He agreed to some kind of a concession that God had not prescribed. Maybe even Moses was getting tired of the back and forth, and he just says, this sounds good, after all, we do get to leave. But even if Moses did fail to see the scheme, our true and better deliverer, Jesus, will have no part of a compromised freedom for us. Too many today have bought into the fallacy of a partial freedom. Like the Israelites, we, we can become so satisfied that we're no longer where we used to be that we take our eyes off of the place that God has so graciously purchased for us and we do well we do very well too often and together look back over our shoulder and see where God has brought us from and thank him and praise him and rehearse his mighty works one to another in song or over a meal and talk about what he's done praise God I'm not what I used to be but that's not to say that we're where he's called us to 
There is for us still growth, maturity, usefulness, revelation, a sanctifying work by the Spirit conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ Himself until we see Him as He is. And so we ask ourselves, am I somewhere in between? I'm grateful, Lord, for all you've done, for all the changes you've made in my life, but have we settled somewhere between where He's called us out of and where he's called us into. And we may ask ourselves, does, does my life say that I'm merely out but not far from the bondage of my former life? Some strange hybrid between slave and free? God in sending Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 1.13, delivered us from the domain of darkness and, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. No middle ground. There's no place in between. And if Moses underestimated that in the moment, he later saw God's perfect purpose in it all when he rehearsed it again in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. There's nothing in between. God did not and does not compromise on your deliverance and neither must we. And let's remind one another of that. And Satan in the heart of Pharaoh, he remains determined. And in chapter 10 of Exodus, he offers up yet another compromise, a lesser version of deliverance. Satan would have us go follow Christ, but then leave our relationships bound up. Exodus 10, beginning in verse 7, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in your mind. No. Go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. See, Pharaoh knew then what we know now. That the complete deliverance that God works was, will, will have effect. So complete, is it so thorough, so far-reaching is the deliverance that God works in the believer's life that nothing goes untouched, including our most fundamental relationships. To come to Christ is to be made new. And that means that every relationship in which we are involved, a new person is involved. A person who carries now the Spirit of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and those relationships cannot stay the same. Pharaoh thought to have the men go. Pharaoh thought to have the men think that it was not their job to lead their homes into freedom that God had promised. And he said, go, men, go worship. Just leave me your wives and children. Pharaoh thought that he could preserve his long-term workforce by, by tearing apart marriages and homes. 
Moses realized that an abandonment of marriage and parenting would be less than the exodus that God has called us to. And it would give God less than the glory he deserved if families got torn up in the process. Moses would not budge or bargain on the deliverance that God was working for the men and the women and the children and generations to come. And as we can see through the growing desperation in, in Pharaoh's responses here, a knowingly defeated and doomed enemy of our souls, he still claws at the marriages, at the relationships, at our families, trying to make us think that Christ cannot deliver our relationships or the generations to come from bondage. Now, it's true. And the Bible is not coy, is not blushing to tell us that some of us will be scorned for Christ's sake and some relationships for Christ's sake will be lost. Such persecution though, such loss of relationship, that's supposed to happen despite our desires to see spouses and children set free, despite our desires and our efforts towards Christ-centered homes and not because we've compromised and given up. God's pleased and glorified in people whose most fundamental relationships are affected, changed by this new freedom. Where husbands are one with their wives and love them as Christ loved the church. Where, where children are raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, taught in the way that they should go, discipled to be the next and better generation of people who are free indeed. There's to be no compromise in this. And again, it's true. Some relationships are the casualties of sin, but we're to trust in the same power that set us free from our captivity to come and heal and mend and shape our relationships. And this is not just for the sake of our domestic tranquility. There's more at stake here. Our right relationships, Christ-centered relationships, gospel-empowered relationships, scripture-shaped relationships, these are to bring God glory and to further the mission of the church in a world where relationships have fallen on hard times. So don't compromise. Never give up. Never stop praying for that unsaved spouse. Don't stop speaking truth to that wayward child. Keep sharing the goodness of Jesus. He still sets captives free. He still heals relationships. And free people are called upon to not give up on those relationships. And finally, we hear Pharaoh bargain for an option that would seem like like just a concession, as though he's finally giving up, cutting his losses, and so he turns and Satan through him will offer to let us follow our deliverer, but just leave all the blessings he's given us in bondage. Look at Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Go ahead, he says. Just all your resources, all your blessings, all of the things, all of the earthly things that God has entrusted you to steward, just leave them in Egypt and you can go. But the livestock, the livestock were their working capital, their blessings from God that they were to steward for His glory. I mean, he mentions it there. The livestock were, were the means by which they rendered glory and sacrifice to God. The livestock was, was how they made a living and took care of their families. Animal husbandry was their skill set, was their industry. These animals represented more than he could imagine. These animals represented the resources that God entrusted to his people so that by them they would give him great glory in the eyes of all the watching nations. Satan knows that if he can just maintain control of our time, treasure, and talents, if we can just leave them behind in, in, in a worldly value system, our hearts will never be far away. Jesus was clear in stating where your treasure is, our hearts will never be far away, he says. There your heart will be also. And the enemy of God's people then and now, he knows this well. And a worldly mentality about the things that God has given us to steward, that's nothing short of captivity. When we, don't when we don't understand and hold as a deep conviction in this newness of life and this, this, this liberated heart of ours, if we don't understand that, that money is not power or identity, that money does not bring security, that money is not the solution to our deepest issues, unless we understand that, we, we are still captive. How we view what God has entrusted to us in our careers, our skills, our giftings, our enterprises. How we view those things says much of, of how we view God. Moses knew this, and in verse 25, Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof of it shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. Our time, our treasure, our talents are primarily just opportunities to honor God and secondarily a means by which we can, imbi we can buy and enjoy the stuff of this life. And a people who understand and enjoy this freedom are a bright light in a world that lives in the darkness of, of greed and fear who trembles watching the next Fed meeting to see what's going to happen with the government shutdown. Are there going to be furloughs and the people of God stand secure knowing in whom they've believed and where He's leading us to? We don't view our redemption or our relationship or our resources through the lens 
of sin and slavery. And bless God, there's an exodus that's still going on. By the gospel, precious people are yet coming out of Satan's bondage and into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so thorough and complete still is that deliverance that it affects every aspect of our existence in this age and in the age to come. So, so we can confidently proclaim to the world, turn, turn from sin to Christ. And we can even proclaim to the church, may we turn from compromise to complete liberty, to the praise of our great rescuer, Jesus. Have and enjoy and display nothing less than all that Jesus Christ came to live and die and rise and ascend to give you and me. All those things. All that Paul rallied the Galatians to embrace when he so forcefully penned Verse 1 of chapter 5 in his letter to them, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, if all this was true in that exodus, how much more in this church age before Christ's return? Jesus, our better Moses, leads us out of a worse slavery than Egypt to a better land than Canaan. Jesus died and lives so that you will live free indeed forever. Would you pray with me? Things we've known things we've sung, things we've said amen to for years, Lord, but things that you would have us reminded of afresh. How complete is your redeeming work, Jesus, that we can, we can leave all behind and follow you confidently. I pray that you would do just that for us. Remind us, enliven us, with the joy of, of liberation, cutting no deals, making no compromises, serving you in worship that is never-ending, in relationships that are being shaped by the gospel, using everything you've entrusted to us for the sake of the glory of your great name and so that others might come to know you as we have because Lord as we look around we see a broken enslaved world under a cruel taskmaster oh that they would know by hearing us and by observing us that we are a people made free because of a, a great deliverer who came and by his blood made all things new for us. I pray that by your spirit you would come and minister these truths to our hearts that we might be that free people for your glory.